This episode is brought to you by Cardinal Health Vital Source GPO. With a deep understanding of industry challenges, Vital Source GPO Site of Care Dispensing Solutions has helped practices resolve transparency issues related to DIR fees with a unique DIR alert solution. Austin Cox, PharmD and clinical pharmacist at Alabama Oncology, describes the alert program as a game changer for his practice. The program gives them insight into hidden fees upon claim adjudication, allowing them to make more informed decisions for the practice. To connect with a Cardinal Health team member to learn more, go to cardinalhealth.com dispensing. Welcome to today's episode of the PQI podcast. Today, we talk with Randall Knoble and Crystal Preston. Dr. Crystal Preston earned her Doctor of Pharmacy from Chicago State University and is board certified in pharmacotherapy. She recently began a new career journey working as a clinical specialty pharmacist in oncology with Amita Health St. Joseph Hospital, Chicago. She also works part-time as a clinical pharmacist at the University of Chicago Comer Children's Hospital. She has made it her life mission to end disparities in healthcare. Dr. Randall Knoble obtained his Doctor of Pharmacy from Midwestern University, Chicago College of Pharmacy. He worked as a clinical pharmacy specialist in leukemia for several years before moving into pharmacy leadership positions. He now works as pharmacy director of health analytics and drug policy. He also serves as the PGY-1 pharmacy residency program director and is the pharmacy director of pain stewardship at the University of Chicago. This is a committee charged to lead efforts institutionally to improve the quality and safety of pain care. Today, we discuss disparities in chronic pain management and Crystal's personal story in dealing with sickle cell disease. Good morning, Crystal and Randy, and thank you so much for being here today. Um, To get started, will you both introduce yourselves to our audience and tell us a little about your backgrounds? All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Crystal Preston. I've been a pharmacist for six years, Um, but I always kind of like to go back to how I got into pharmacy. So I was in high school and there was this summer program where they let Chicago public school students work at CVS Pharmacy as technicians. And it was in collaboration with the University of Illinois College of Pharmacy. And so prior to that, I had no idea that pharmacists worked outside of Walgreens. So, um, you know, 11 years later, my life came full circle, um, graduating pharmacy school and beginning my career at the University of Chicago Medicine at the Comer Children's Hospital specifically, Um, I was actually born at the University of Chicago and the children's hospital was called Weiler back then. So from being a patient there to actually serving patients there, you know, just life came full circle and it was an exciting time. And so during my tenure there, I got to work in different areas such as the OR and I then started to be trained on chemo. And so then I took a job at DuPage Medical Group where I was full-time in their chemotherapy infusion center. And I've since transitioned on to um, beginning a new job with Amita Health at St. Joseph Hospital of Chicago. I began that this coming Monday in their chemotherapy infusion center as clinical pharmacist specialist. 
That's awesome. That's a great story. I love, I love that everything came for full circle and I love that they it had is. a program um, <laughs> that's introducing high schoolers to pharmacy. That's, that's pretty neat. I haven't really heard of something like that. Um, and congratulations on the new job. That's very, that's always exciting to start something new. Thank you. Thank you. And then Randy. Sure. Um, thank you all for inviting me uh, today for this podcast. Um, so my name is Randy Knoble. I uh, obtained my doctor of pharmacy degree from Midwestern University, um, Chicago College of Pharmacy, and then um, did my PGY-1 residency at Rush University Medical Center, and, and then went on to a PGY-2 residency at the University of Washington, um, specializing in hematology oncology. And that's kind of where I fell in love with pain patients. I was a provider. They're a bit more progressive on the West Coast uh, with pharmacy um, kind of responsibilities. And so I was actually a provider in a, in a head and neck cancer pain clinic uh, and got to work a lot with uh, chronic, uh, chronic cancer pain patients uh, and just really um, loved working with that population. Um, after residency, then I started uh, University of Chicago and I can't believe I've been here for going on 12 years now. Uh, and I've had various different roles. Uh, started off as a, a leukemia specialist on the inpatient side for the first five or so years. And then uh, transitioned into a few different roles within the leadership team. And now I'm uh, currently pharmacy director of health analytics and drug policy. Uh, for the last five or so years, I've also been the residency program director for our first year um, uh, pharmacy residents, which has been um, probably the best part of my job, just getting to mentor uh, people that are up and coming and getting to influence their careers early on. Uh, and then just kind of wrapping it back to the pain stuff. I, I'm the pharmacy director for pain stewardship um, here at the organization. Uh, and so what that means is, is really just a committee that's charged to lead institutional efforts to improve the quality and safety of pain care. We don't focus just on opioids because what we'll talk about during this podcast is if you just focus on opioids, you're neglecting uh, the other half of what drives pain. Uh, and so I think it's really important to think about this holistically. Um, and then, you know, lastly, I'm, I'm wrapping up my master's of public health degree. Oh, wow. I'm actually a student again. Um, and so I'll be finishing up that degree uh, in the springtime, finishing that at UIC. That's awesome. Con congratulations on that. Um, I know it's, it's hard to go back to school when you've been out for a long time. <laughs> Very hard. Yeah, I miss my weekends for sure. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Well, ho hopefully you'll have some good, some good weekends again soon. Um, so to start out, Randy, will you talk to me? You just published an article and I have to look at the title. So um, in health equity, and it's called treatment disparities among the black population and their influence on equitable management of chronic pain. So we'll get more in depth to the article, but can you give our audience a general overview um, of what, what that was about? Yeah. Um, so the purpose, just high level of, of the article, it's, it's a review article just to explore causative factors that might influence the management of chronic pain among amongst the African-American population. Um, and that could, and, and really the factors I was looking at was trying to figure out what might drive those disparate outcomes. Um, and what you generally see is that unfortunately, the African-American population has more unfavorable outcomes and it's not clear what's really driving that. So I explored those factors from like the patient perspective, the provider perspective and system level perspective uh, to try to tr truly identify root causes and put themes together so that we can actually start to put some stuff into action. Um, what's important to recognize is that race is a social construct, right? Like this is a human designed construct. 
Um, and that's precisely the reason that I wanted to focus on this topic, because if you just stop at race, you're missing all the drivers below that in terms of what's missing, what's really, really driving the outcomes. Um, and so you have to look at things that are upstream and downstream uh, to be able to fix stuff. And so by focusing on race alone, you minimize the impact of the environment, uh, structural drivers, societal drivers, life course advice, um, kind of things in terms of exposures early on and how that can actually cause um, issues uh, later on in life. And you have to focus on those things to truly address the issue. Uh, and, and lastly, if you just stop short on race, um, you're, that could actually reinforce stereotypes uh, that actually are more going to negatively, uh, even more negatively impact the outcome. And so I really wanted to focus a lot on uh, some of the structural, environmental, and societal factors and, and, and just kind of seeing those associations as they correlate with race and how I could tie those then to an outcome in pain. Okay, awesome. And then the article starts by defining chronic non-malignant pain. So will one of you, and that may be Randy, um, define that for us? And then what are some of the disparities that are found in the patients with chronic non-malignant pain? So pain is complex, right? Pain is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. And so simply put, one's pain perception is an effective response to pain and the ultimate behavior is influenced by a complex set of biological, psychosocial, and cultural interactions, right? So you cannot just like go into a doctor's office and say, can you do a test or blood test or an x-ray and tell me how much pain I'm having? That's, that's an impossible feat because it's not just biology that's driving this disease. It's, it's psychosocial and cultural interactions. Um, and so really, it's simply put, it's pain is it's highly individualized, it's subjective, and it's often defined by what the patient says it is. And that means that you have to be a good listener in order to truly understand what, uh, what that means, right? Like a patient isn't gonna go into the doctor's office and look sick. Uh, they may have more pain intensity, but over time, patients might find the effects of living with chronic pain might impact their ability to work or engage in recreational activities, social activities, and have joy and what problems happens is that pain begins to chip away at their, their being, right? Like their, their mood, leaving them angry, frustrated, anxious, and depressed. And that then negatively reinforces that chronic pain because again, it's a biopsychosocial response. So it's a very complex disease uh, and it cannot just be simply um, you know, taken at face value in terms of just a biological response. Again, it's, it's holistic and, and that's I think what makes it so complex. Okay. And then Crystal, so as far as some of the disparities, I'll, I'll have you maybe talk a little about that. But to start off, I know that you have sickle cell disease, um, and you can personally attest to some of the information in the article. So will you share more on your own personal story with sickle cell and what you've experienced? Okay, well, um, I was born back in the 80s. I'm telling my age. <laughs> so back then, um, prior to like my diagnosis, I wasn't diagnosed until I was 18 months old and um, it could have been fatal. Um, my spleen was about to rupture. And so um, they weren't testing babies, you know, at birth for, you know, sickle cell. They weren't doing all of that blood typing and things like that. And so, um, like I said, I was diagnosed at 18 months. I am glad that I had a provider that actually 
you know, she didn't know too much about sickle cell, but she said that, you know, she was going to dedicate time to do her own research and really, you know, just kind of help guide me along that journey. And that journey lasted up until I was 22 years old. I was seeing the same pediatrician. So this is where the disparities come in because um, the article talks a lot about access to care and effective communication between provider and patient. And as Randy just mentioned, as a provider, you really need to be a good listener. Um, pain is one of those things where you can just look at someone and tell that they're in pain. Um, it's, you know, patient perception and how they describe it to you. And if you really pay attention and kind of focus in on um, different cues from the patient, you can really kind of help develop, you know, a proper treatment for them. So I think the main factor is access of care. You know, I had parents that had excellent insurance. My dad worked for the government. My mother worked for the city as a Chicago public school teacher. So I can go to the University of Chicago or anywhere because there's times we've been out of town. I was in Disney World in Florida and I had a sickle cell crisis. Oh, and so we went to the emergency room there. I was treated. I was able to get medication at the local pharmacy, whereas that's not the case for um, many minorities, specifically African-Americans, they don't have that access. Um, I think we're getting a little bit better now because we're having these conversations and laws are being put into place like the Affordable Care Act, where they're encouraging everyone to have insurance despite um, your job situation or anything like that. But, you know, back in the day, there wasn't, you know, testing as much as there is now. There wasn't um, access to great providers as there is now. Um, and even still, some people fall through the loopholes. You know, we have to be more um, willing to go that extra mile as providers. Um, I know for me in my specific sickle cell experience, as I've gotten older, sometimes I don't always tell people what I do for a living. So I'll walk into a facility, um, for example, a local Chicago area emergency room. I went there and I was there for, I want to say six hours in pain before I was treated. And then I told them to take an x-ray and they said, oh, your lungs sound good. You don't need an x-ray. I was like, I think you need to take an x-ray because I could feel it. I knew I had pneumonia. Uh -huh. um, that's one of the complications of sickle cell. Like you can easily form a pneumonia in your lungs. And so I'm telling them to take an x-ray because I feel, you know, the pain in my chest. And so um, they said, oh, your lungs sound good. It's fine. They sent me home with a prescription for Norco. Um, and I also asked them to send me home with a script for Zofran because I know that I can't take Norco without, you know, having nausea. Yeah. And, you know, they were reluctant to do that. And so the next day I ended up back in the emergency room, but at a different hospital where as soon as I walked in, they said, okay, let's go get her an x-ray. So you can kind of see the difference yeah. in care. I'm not saying that the other hospital was a bad hospital. There may have been different factors as to why the level of care was different, but 
Um, for one thing, a lot of sickle cell patients know their body. They know what works for them in terms of the pain medication. And, you know, that effective communication, that listening component was so important, you know, at that, that aspect. But I immediately went for the x-ray. They found pneumonia. They oh immediately God. started ceftriaxone and Zithromax. And I was in the hospital for five days. <laughs> so just to know that all I had to do was go a few miles southwest of where I live to get better care, you know, it it kind of plays into, you know, the disparities that are described in that article. And for me, I think access and effective communication between doctor and patient are more important. I'm glad that I'm able to advocate for myself and other family members when it comes to pain. Randy, I often reference that lecture you gave when I was a resident about the different um, types of pain and the treatments associated with the different receptors. So instead of using opioids all the time, you go to gabapentin and things like that. A lot of my church members have chronic pain in other disease states. And so they often come and talk to me about that. And, you know, it's just nice to have someone that's knowledgeable about all of those treatments and being able to share that information with the community. No, and I think, I mean, there are so many lessons there for healthcare providers in kind of what Randy talked about and actually listening to the patient. And then, I mean, with you, you, you know, you are a pharmacist, you know, these things and you're able to advocate for yourself, but then you think about the patients, um, just general, general patients with absolutely no healthcare background. Um, it becomes, I think a little more difficult. And then, um, so let me move on to the next question is one statement that I found surprising in the article. Um, I learned, I learned lots of new things, but one thing that was new um, is that just 22% of physicians provide care for 80% of African Americans in the United States. Um, so the article also discusses that these physicians report limited access to healthcare resources like specialists and diagnostic imaging. Um, I know it, it kind of touched on the percentage of them that are board certified and it wasn't, it wasn't huge. Um, so can you all talk to us more about those, that issue? Um, I just, I just found it really surprising. I feel like that's a very low number for 80% of patients. Yeah, I, I was also surprised by that data. Um, it's a really fascinating study that was published in New England Journal. It's a little dated now, it's 2004, but I can't imagine that it's shifted yeah. dramatically to this point. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so as you pointed out, 22% of physicians provide care to 80% of African Americans in the United States. This was looking at Medicare recipients over the age of 65. Um, they found, like you said, that they were less likely to be board certified and uh, more likely um, having a feeling that they weren't able to provide high quality care to their patients. And I think that speaks a lot to what Crystal was just talking about, right? Like workplace chaos and ability to really focus on the patient um, can be strained when you have an overloaded schedule. There's another study that I cited in the paper that was by Barkey and colleagues that um, kind of took this to the next level and really looked at the work, work workplace and characteristics of uh, primary care clinics. Um, and they focused on clinics that provided um, care to uh, clinics that represented or had 30% of patients that were underrepresented minorities. And what they found is that much to what Crystal was kind of highlighting, right, is that they have less access to medical supplies, fewer examination rooms, uh, fewer 
um, specialists, uh, more likely to have patients covered by Medicaid, more likely to have patients that report symptoms of depression within the last two weeks, more likely to have uh, patients that have lower levels of health literacy. It's kind of creating this perfect storm because you have these physicians who aren't as, uh, you know, having, having the expertise uh, or even the time uh, to, you know, be able to navigate all these complex, uh, you know, psychosocial or uh, psycho psychologically complex patients. Um, and, you know, as a result, what they found is that physicians in those clinics were more likely to report less control over their work environments, lower job satisfaction, higher rates of burnout. Uh, and so it's really just kind of this combination of time, pressure, insufficient resources, complexity of patients that kind of creates, again, this perfect storm uh, that, you know, are, are kind of an uphill battle. Uh, and then you, you, in, in, you, you create then these kind of structural racism things that are surrounding all of this. And I think that that kind of tells the story of why you, uh, you might have these disparate outcomes. Yes. And then can you, yeah, I can agree with that because, um, I wasn't actually surprised by the data, um, just because mm -hmm. being an African-American person growing up, you don't see too many people when you go to the doctor, when you go to the emergency room who are working in that capacity, you don't see too many people that look like you. Um, things are changing now, but the data has not changed drastically. Um, but I can definitely, you know, attest to, you know, being a student or being involved in other organizations and activities where it's not too many people who look like me, which is why um, I try to give back to, you know, the profession. I go and I speak to students, pharmacy students, and I even go and speak to a few of my family members are educators. So I speak to their students in oh. elementary schools and high schools telling them about pharmacy, um, just because there needs to be more um, African-Americans and Latinos and Asian and more representation, basically. Um, and that creates, you know, a better environment, better patient and provide a relationship, better communication, because there may be some facets of that patient's pain that only, you know, I can relate to as an African-American provider versus someone who does not have that type of experience. Yes, no, that is a, a great point. And I know the article focuses on some, some of that as well. So it's a good segue into can, can you all talk a little more about any other findings um, that you thought were important from the article and then also how we can start to overcome some of these barriers. And I love it, Crystal, that you're going to talk to students um, when they're as early as elementary school, because I think that's fantastic to lay that foundation for them. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to kind of summarize some of the findings. I think I, I started off with the biological differences. And I think that I started with that because as I talked about before, race is a social construct, right? Like we do have ancestral differences and that does drive some genetic differences, but those genetic differences when they do like GWAS type things cannot explain the differences in, 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 in pain perception. And so I, I, I highlight that just to acknowledge that there are experiments that have demonstrated differences in pain uh, tolerance and response uh, between whites and African-Americans. But I think that as I described in the beginning, we would be doing a disservice to patients in general if we just stopped there. 
And I think it doesn't explain, any of those studies don't explain if that's more of a driver around allostatic load. So this has to do with life course uh, kind of stressors. Um, and, it, and it's unclear also if those experimental differences result in any sort of practical applicability in terms of clinical practice changes. Um, and so I, I wanted to acknowledge that first. And then we talked a lot already about some of the implicit bias that comes into uh, managing patients. Uh, and so I talk a lot about differences in, um, in, in, in how providers are assessing pain between, and it's oftentimes African-Americans compared to whites. Um, and so what they found is that there's a tendency to minimize pain suffered by African-Americans, typically in providers that don't have as extensive medical training. And so Crystal shared a lot about having a really great relationship with their sickle cell provider, um, right? Like that's, that's somebody who has extensive training and is able to empathize and truly understand. Um, so I think training has something to do with it and also ambiguity. Um, and this, is, this comes into race concordance. And so there's been studies that have looked at if you have an African-American provider versus a white provider, is there a difference in how patients are communicating during those, um, those interactions as well as are there differences in how the pain is being reported in those interactions? And there, is, there are differences. And I think that has to do, again, with the importance of making sure that our workforce is representative or mimicking very similarly the, uh, the patient uh, demographic that you're taking care of. I think that's an important thing, uh, and that's what Crystal's talked a lot about already. Um, and I've already discussed all the structural things. And so, you know, like, where do you go from here, right? So, like, there's a lot of, like, before we can, you know, tear down all these, uh, you know, institutionally and structurally designed inequities, I think we just have to acknowledge one that looking in the mirror, right, and acknowledging the fact that um, everybody has implicit bias and that's okay but you have to recognize that that's a part of, of us and that it can come into play when you are in a chaotic environment or feeling stressed and not able to check your emotions. So I think really importantly there, don't, don't stereotype, right? So deploy strategies that can um, do stereotype replacement um, and framing this differently, uh, adopting individuation, right? So like not everybody, everybody, you shouldn't do cookie cutter medicine, everything should be, um, you know, based off of what that specific patient's needs are, right? And as we discussed with pain, right, it's a biopsychosocial response. Maybe you, the patient doesn't need more pain medication. Maybe they need to, to get a different resource to manage their pain. Seeing a psychologist, seeing, uh, maybe taking care of their basic needs, food, water, um, housing security, job security, all those things feed into stress and stress drives pain, especially in chronic pain. Um, this develop, establishing meaningful relationships and partnerships with patients and other providers so that you can start to mail, build those not only community partnerships, but also just, you know, patient advocacy groups and providing those resources to patients so that uh, it's not just relying on you. And then I think just being able to critique ourselves, right, like being humble uh, and understanding that we all have opportunities for improvement, whether that be our behaviors or attitudes or biases, and we should be willing to accept that feedback from uh, and, and self-reflect on that stuff. So I think it's a lot of looking in the mirror, to be honest. And that's where we could start now. Yes. And Crystal, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about, um, like at one point I did see in an article is how um, 
a lot of these um, biases aren't always necessarily based on racial bias. It's based on the actual stereotype. So if you think historically, you know, even back to, you know, slavery, you know, African-Americans were deemed as stronger and that they could actually do, you know, this work, right? So that kind of plays in a part today because, you know, a lot of times we're often programmed to be stronger. Um, I just started learning in my 30s to really kind of put myself first because there's times where I will go to work and I will be in pain, but I don't want to, you know, call off or let my team down. So I'll suffer through that because I'm programmed to, you know, you go to work because you don't want people to view you as, you know, that person that's calling off all the time and things like that. And even from a provider standpoint, you know, you may be listening to an African-American patient who has pain, but you may not, you know, prescribe them the same pain treatment as you do someone else because you think, well, maybe, you know, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, maybe they can handle it a little bit more just based off of historical um, perceptions and the structural um, biases that Randy mentions now on this podcast and within the article. So it's very important to recognize those concepts. And like Randy said, to really just look in the mirror. Um, I also wanted to address um, the part in the article that talked about um, where there was um, a communication breakdown and where there are not many African-Americans involved in clinical trials. That all goes back to the mistrust that we have in, you know, government entities and things like, like that, you know, back to things such as the Tuskegee experiment or um, recently what I learned at the ENCODA conference there was um, a presentation where they spoke about um, a guy who was who thought that he was going to be an experiment about um, eczema in his head, but in reality, he was being exposed to radiation, and it caused him to have a lifelong deformity to where he had to wear um, wigs and hats to cover it his entire life, and he didn't start showing his deformity until the 80s. So his parent, he and his parents were, you know, um, confused as to what was going on. They didn't know that they would be signing up for that. You know what I'm saying? So it all goes back to the, um, you know, structural um, racism back in the day where they're strategically, you know, telling you one thing and it's really going to do another so that leads to mistrust and you know some people don't go to the doctor because of that some people actually will say well oh I have my natural herbs so I'll be okay but then you're still in pain because those natural herbs aren't working and then that leads to you know stress and depression and a a multitude of things that can kind of keep you down whereas you know access isn't your issue but your issue is, you know, being afraid to actually communicate with your provider based on um, previous structural biases and other um, things that led to mistrust within the community. Okay, Um, those are great points. And I have a couple more questions for you. I know 
we're going a little over, but what you all have to say is so important. I, I want to keep on going. Um, so the article discusses a team-based approach to chronic pain as a solution, including pharmacists, which we love as part of chronic pain management. Um, so our listeners are a lot of pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, physicians, nurses, um, just the different parts that make up the um, Hemonc team. So will one or both of you comment more on the team and including the pharmacist um, and what you would want our team members to take away from this conversation? And whoever would like to start, Crystal or Randy? I mean, I can talk about my experience in being a pharmacist. Um, so a lot of times, like especially when I'm in coma and dealing with a lot of those sickle cell patients, I often catch that um, providers will enter um, whatever the um, patient reports as their last um, home medication, and then they'll start that in the hospital. So a lot of times, um, especially my frequent flyers, I know their regimens. And so um, there's a couple of them where they'll enter it wrong. So they're taking hydroxyurea, maybe, you know, 500 one day and then a thousand the next and so um, it kind of flip-flops because they they're supposed to take it Monday Wednesday Friday and the other one Tuesday Thursday but the doctor often you know flip-flops it so a pharmacist that actually knows the patient and knows their history it's important to kind of you know catch that um, I also noticed you know there's um, issues in terms of ordering you know pain medication you know they'll have um, you know, ibuprofen scheduled, but they'll have like zero platelets. So I'll catch something like that, you know, to say, hey, you know, why don't we just take that off and, you know, keep something like Tylenol on board, you know, as well as, you know, the opioids, but you don't necessarily need to have the ibuprofen right now until they recover. So um, it's important to have a pharmacist to kind of catch those types of mistakes. And it's, also important to have um, a collaborative team that actually listens to that other person when they offer that type of recommendation. Because um, starting off in my pharmacy career, I worked at a very small community hospital. And every time I called the doctor, he never wanted to adhere to my recommendations. So it was very different coming to the University of Chicago and actually being able to feel like you're a part of the team and offer recommendations and, you know, to kind of catch these issues and, you know, also talking with nursing as well um, at the bedside, you know, and being able to actually go and speak with patients and talk to them about their disease state. Um, it was very important for me just because most sickle cell patients are African-American. So for them to see me as a provider and coming to educate them and their parents on their regimen, it's, you know, really important to kind of have that as well. So just to have a more diverse medical team in terms of um, background and uh, discipline is very important. Thank you. Those are all, all great things for us to remember. So appreciate it. And then Randy, do you have anything to add to that? I, I don't, I, I think Crystal provided a lot of really great examples there. I think it just shows that the value of pharmacists is our unique knowledge, skill set, abilities that kind of make them critical to the interprofessional team. I actually want to focus on what prevents it from being scalable, right? So pharmacists face a lot of challenges in terms of 
um, that prevent them from fully using their skill set. And one key one is we're not recognized by CMS as providers. Yeah. And so that doesn't allow us to bill for services, which prevents, you know, of course, then if you can't bill for services, how do you justify a position? And the other major challenge is that when you look at a retail pharmacist, there's often an information gap, right? They don't see the full picture. They're trying to put a story together based off of their prescription details. And I think that also makes it difficult. And so just like a simple call to action, right? Like you have pharmacists partner with them, partner with them and via various initiatives, you will have value added to that project. Um, support the passage of um, Pharmacy and Medically Underserved Areas Act. Um, this is the bill that would allow for CMS to recognize pharmacists as providers. And then lastly, just work uh, and continue to do advocacy stuff, partner with your pharmacists and their various organizations um, to help with state legislation uh, to, to make those changes within a state and local level. Okay, those are great points too. And I hope Ke Kevin on here who's editing is taking notes because he also leads in CODA's um, Politi political committee. So he, hopefully he, he can get some good information on the legislation there. Um, and so I just have two more questions for you. One is on the PQI, Crystal. Um, we call this the PQI podcast. And I know I had the pleasure of working with you on a PQI in action article um, late last year. Has it already been a year? Ago? No, it hasn't. It was probably about March. Okay, early this week. Year. Yeah. <laughs> okay. My, my times are all running together. Um, I know it's this pandemic. <laughs> it is. I, you know, I, I'm at home every day, just day after day. <laughs> so, um, but will you talk to me about what you think the value of Encoda's positive quality interventions is? Well, I kind of spoke to this in a previous question, just being able to have um, a diverse and collaborative team. So, um, you know, having someone from nursing, having a pharmacist, having the physician, having the physician assistant and a nurse practitioner, and, you know, even the pharmacy technician all on one accord, you know, our main thing is patient care. So if we only have, you know, one provider doing everything, every step of the process, then that kind of leaves out a lot of key components of the patient care cycle, right? So what if you only have the physician prescribing meds and that med automatically goes off to a CVS or a specialty pharmacy, you know, without anyone else kind of doing like a checks and balances type approach or having a full conversation about that patient and all the factors that affects that patient's care. So I believe, you know, the positive quality interventions kind of highlights everyone's role in it um, and kind of provides a framework, you know, for each, you know, drug that we've done it on. And, um, you know, even now with this podcast on pain management, we're addressing an issue that is global, you know what I'm saying? And so for everyone to kind of listen to this and take key components, and now they're going to go and read Randy's article and learn a lot more <laughs> and see what they can do to apply it to their practice. So I believe that's what the PQIs are all about. I love that. Thank you. And Randy, we will post the article if you're okay with it in our show notes um, so that people can, if we can provide a direct link, that would be fantastic. Yeah, it's open access. So okay. um, you're welcome to do that. For sure. Awesome. 
And then one last fun question for each of you. And we're, we're going into season two of the podcast. So we're mixing it up with new fun questions. <laughs> but if you could only watch one movie for the rest of your life, what, which movie would you choose? <laughs> and whoever thinks of something first can go. Can go. Oh gosh. I mean, I'm a sucker for like Chris Farley. So like Tommy boy, I just watched this weekend and I was like, it's, I could, I could watch that the rest of my life. All right. There you go. Tommy boy on repeat forever. (laughs) Um, I like Halloween movies because my birthday is close to Halloween. So, uh, Hocus Pocus. Oh, that's a Disney classic. So long. That's a great one. (laughs) Happy happy belated birthday. Thank you. Two two good choices. Two good choices. (laughs) Thank you both so much for being here today. I feel like you could probably talk for another hour um, on some of these issues and, and what we can do to address them. But I really appreciate you starting the conversation and then hopefully maybe we can work with you on um, future education. So thank you both. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Crystal and Randy. To download this podcast, you can search the PQI podcast on Spotify and Apple and remember to subscribe. You can listen on our website at encoda.org. That's N-C-O-D-A dot org. You can also follow us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We would also like to thank Encoda for making this podcast possible. And we hope you join us next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody. This episode is brought to you by Cardinal Health Vital Source GPO. With a deep understanding of industry challenges, Vital Source GPO Site of Care Dispensing Solutions has helped practices resolve transparency issues related to DIR fees with a unique DIR alert solution. Austin Cox, PharmD and clinical pharmacist at Alabama Oncology, describes the alert program as a game changer for his practice. The program gives them insight into hidden fees upon claim adjudication, allowing them to make more informed decisions for the practice. To connect with a Cardinal Health team member to learn more, go to cardinalhealth.com slash dispensing.